Well, we come once again to the letter of 1 Timothy found in the New Testament. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul through divine inspiration, and it was a letter that was sent to Timothy, a young pastor serving the church in Ephesus. The main focus of the letter was to encourage sound doctrine, sound conduct, and a godly leadership. And today we're seeking to finish out chapter 5, so go ahead, grab your Bibles, and get them open up at 1 Timothy chapter 5 as we see what the Lord has for us today. Last week we focused what it means to be a godly family. The outworking of a sound doctrine is that we care for one another. We handle correction and rebuke with sensitivity, yet at the same time we're not scared to address sin in one another. We then shifted our focus just slightly to see how we care for the widows of the church. And the two key lessons we got from the passage was that if children and grandchildren are around and are able, they are to take the primary care for widows. And if there is no family and the widow is left alone, the church is to take primary care for the widow. And it's been interesting to see how Paul spent the first three chapters nailing down what doctrine, conduct and leadership is to look like before he addresses these matters. For it's through the word of God that we see the outcome of a godly family caring for one another and especially caring for the widows. Today, as we come to our passage, we're still on the same theme, the outworking of sound doctrine, but rather than the care for the widow, or for the fellow brothers and sisters in the church, we're now going to focus on the care of elders or on the leaders of the church. The question we'll be looking at is this, what does it look like for the church to take care of its leaders? What does it look like for the church to take care of its leaders? Now in a recent survey, 85% of pastors stated that they had felt significant negative pressure during the COVID pandemic. Over 60% of pastors had thought about quitting and no longer serving in ministry during the COVID-19 pandemic. And nearly all, a staggering 95% of spouses of those in ministry felt stressed, underappreciated and fearful. Now these statistics obviously don't give us the full picture, but what it does indicate is the desperate need to understand how the church should care for its leaders. So we're going to head in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and we're going to be picking up from verse 17. So have your Bibles and read along with me. Verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. We're once again met with this term elder, which we've previously seen in chapter 3 and verse 1. Elder is the general term referring to overseer, pastor or an eldership. And their main responsibility is to shepherd the church through the word of God. In some cases, they might shepherd through prayer and support, but in most cases, it's through the teaching and establishment of God's word. Now, verse 17 indicates that some of these overseers will be noted as ruling well. Now, the word in Greek for rule here in verse 17 is proistemi, which means to stand first or to be the first in leadership. A modern way of saying this might be a leader of leaders. And we see a similar phrasing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labour among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. The elders are to be first amongst leaders as they serve the Lord 
by serving the church. Now, some of these elders who stand first will be known to rule well, or in other words, they'll be noted for their excellence in service. There's a connotation here that the leaders are going to be evaluated and they'll determine them as excellent in their service. Essentially, how do we know that they're excellent in their service? We evaluate their work. Is it godly? Is it holy? Is it of excellence as they serve? As we said back in chapter 3, we're talking about the Hosea 4.9 principle, and it shall be like people, like priest. We seek elders to rule well, to rule with excellence for the leader, so the people. The congregation follow the example of that leader, meaning if the leader does not serve in a most excellent way, then it's highly likely that the church will not serve the Lord in a most excellent manner. Once the church has established that their first to stand, their leader of leaders, is serving in a most excellent way, what then? What are we to do when a leader is known for serving the Lord in a most excellent manner? Well, we're told that they're deserving of double honour. And let me deal with this word double, for it's a little bit deceiving, actually. It doesn't literally mean double portion that's measured out. Rather, it means an increased and generous amount. The idea being is that whatever you give normally to an elder, the ones who serve in a most excellent way are to have an increase in what is given significantly to the point of a high level of generosity. Specifically, we're referring to honour. And generally speaking, honour means respect and high regard. But in the context of the previous verses, as we considered widows, it likely refers to finances. For elders in the first century church often were in full-time service and therefore they were supported by the church as they served the church. Now it was Clark, a theologian, that stated, almost every critic of note allows that honour signifies reward, stipend or wages. Let him have double who rules well. So we have a group of elders serving excellently, receiving double honour. But then we have another group. With the use of the word especially coming from the Greek word malista, meaning chiefly, Paul is putting the emphasis of double honour onto those who preach and teach the word of God. And I'm not talking about the odd Bible study here and there. We're talking about those who labour, who work to the point of exhaustion in preaching, meaning the proclamation of truth, and in the teaching, meaning the instruction of God's word. Now, it was Charles Spurgeon who said, we cannot play at preaching. We preach for eternity. It is those individuals that we recognise who are serving in the most excellent way, who serve in preaching and teaching, are worthy of double honour. Verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. I want you to just look at this wonderful phrase for a moment. For the scripture says. Paul refers to two passages to show that this is not a new thing, but it's something of old. And I love when we say a phrase like this. For no scripture stands alone. Instead, it stands in the context of the whole character of God and the whole canon of scripture. So where does Paul go? Well, first he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. 
As the ox worked out the grain, no muzzle was placed on it. The ox was allowed to eat as it worked. There was no restriction and no harsh treatment. Instead, there was a generosity of allowing the ox to eat as it worked. And the clear parallel here, as the leaders who serve well, they should be provided for, so that there is no restriction on their service. There should be nothing that holds them back, whether that be financing, housing, support for the family, holiday breaks, health issues, nothing should hold the leader back from serving wholeheartedly. Secondly, we have Luke 10, 7. And here's an interesting point. Not even at this very early stage in the early church, Paul refers to the gospel as scripture. It was becoming well known amongst the followers of Jesus that the gospel manuscripts were scripture, meaning they were coming from God, meaning they were the very words of God. And those who labor, likely referring to servants here, are deserving of wages. They gave their life to serve, and so they should be paid financially to do so. Again, there's a clear parallel here that Paul is making. Those who serve the Lord full-time are to be paid for the work that they do. Now, I want to be really real with us today. We want this to be practical. We want this to be meaningful for us today. I've spoken to many leaders in my time in ministry and I've experienced some of these things myself where, yes, a house is provided for, but it's falling to bits. Or yes, a salary is provided for, but it barely covers the leader's needs. Or yes, there is time given for a family holiday, but only a few days after a busy period. Or yes, there's a budget to cover an expense, but not all the expense, only a portion of it. And I want to be clear that none of these situations meet what it means to have an increased and overly generous respect, high regard and care through finances and practicalities. The treat them mean to keep them keen is just simply not a biblical principle. Instead, those who serve most excellently, especially those who preach and teach, are to have an increased and generous, almost lavish response from the church. Verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, there are always going to be individuals who will seek to bring down the ministry of those who stand first, of those who are leaders of leaders. It is often due to a rejection of what is being taught, but not always exclusively to that issue. These individuals will bring false accusations against the men of God who preach and teach. In the age of social media and emails, these accusations have an even easier platform and a wider audience to gather momentum. And these accusations can hit on so many different things. Uh, how the leader is with their family or in their marriage, how the leader responds to life, maybe an accusation of anger or deceiving others. However, they can also be very serious. I know of one pastor who was accused of stealing money from the church and it turned out the one who accused the pastor was the very individual that was stealing the funds from the church. So what are we to do with these accusations when they occur and what are we to do with them specifically towards those who are preaching and teaching and who are worthy of double honour? Well, first and foremost, unsubstantiated accusations should be immediately rejected. They are to be ignored and not pursued in any form of way. Consider Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness 
shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offence that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. One person's opinion, rant, argument or accusation should be rejected. It holds no grounds to put against the leader. But the second is really important. Although an accusation could prove false, if there are two or more to confirm agreement or confirm the events, these accusations should be investigated either to prove true or to prove false. Now the passage is not trying to limit or even protect the leader, rather it's trying to ensure that nonsensical and false accusations do not tarnish the reputation of those who serve most excellently, especially those who preach and teach the word of God. Verse 20. Now as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. We must protect elders from false accusations, but we must also deal with the true scenarios. Any sin that persists in the elder's life, and by which we mean anything that causes us to fall away from a 1 Timothy 3 standard of serving, bears a consequence. And we know that we can sum up the responsibility of the leader, certainly from 1 Timothy 3, as a conduct that is above reproach. If any action or word or even thought causes a leader to no longer be above reproach and it's not dealt with and it's not repented from, then this leader should be rebuked in the presence of all. And to rebuke means to correct. It means that these behaviours have to be stated aloud and corrected in a public forum, likely in a modern sense, a members meeting. It should be noted that we're not talking about a punishment here but rather a strict guidance to repent and once sin is dealt with, to restore. You see, being a leader of leaders is a serious matter. James 3.1 Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Where maybe a mistake or a sin could be chalked up for inexperience, a bad judgment or a lapsed godliness, for the leader there are no such situations that can be afforded to them. Those who serve faithfully should be double honoured, but those who are sinful should be publicly corrected for the standard of holy, holiness in the church should be met. Remember the Hosea 4.9 principle, as the leaders, so the church. So the leaders are to be rebuked and corrected so that the church would not fall into the same sin. But why publicly? Why not privately in a more sensitive manner? Here's the kicker. So the rest, likely referring to the other leaders, would stand in the fear of God. It shows the need for wisdom and purity in service. It reminds of the seriousness in service. It shows the leaders that are there to be constantly vigilant and watch for what the devil might use to make the church stumble. Clearly though, this rebuke, this correction in a public forum was a hard task for Timothy to undertake. He's likely in his 30s and this would mean publicly correcting someone who was much older than him and someone that was deemed wise amongst the congregation. Yet even though it was difficult, Paul reminds that the Father, Christ himself and the angels are watching. They are the ones to fear, not the reaction of the leader or even the church themselves. 
we cannot tolerate perpetual sin in the leaders of the church, for Christ does not tolerate perpetual sin in the leaders of the church. When it comes to sin, nobody should be given a preferential treatment. As Barclay states, nothing does more harm than when some people are treated as if they could do no wrong and others as if they could do no right. We continue verse 22. Do not be hasty in laying on of the hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Uh, the best way for the church to guard itself and for Timothy or the pastor to guard themselves from leaders who are unqualified and who will need to be corrected is to avoid being quick or hasty in the laying of hands. And this phrase, the laying of hands, simply means to affirm suitability and support for the leader in the role. Consider an Old Testament example in Deuteronomy 34, 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. To lay hands on someone is to some extent seek the Lord to fill them with wisdom and ability to serve. And therefore we're to avoid doing it quickly. If we're too quick to elect elders or even to support their continued service, we're in danger of electing unqualified leaders. When we do this, we partake in their sins because we have affirmed them. We have affirmed their beliefs, their skill sets and their behaviour. We therefore affirm perpetual sin if it's in existence. And so for us to remain pure, we need to take time to consider the individual, their life and how they stack up with regards to sound doctrine and sound conduct. It's an extremely serious task to elect leaders of the church and one that shouldn't be taken lightly and one that should be led by God and not personal opinion. Now, we have a bit of an odd thing here. Of course, verse 23 comes next, but it seems to John, I'll explain in a moment. Let's head into verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I want you to note the brackets here. This is a personal note from Paul to Timothy. The whole letter is for the whole church, but here's a personal note for Timothy. It seems that Paul wanted to qualify what he means by purity in verse 22. He doesn't want Timothy to be mistaken. Timothy was known to abstain from wine and drink only water. And therefore, he may take verse 22 as a confirmation of such an activity to remain pure. However, water in the first century wasn't clean. It was known to carry many diseases and it would often cause serious health issues. Therefore, it would be good for Timothy to drink a little wine so that he would not find himself constantly ill. Now, the odd thing about this verse is that it is quick and snappy and it gets to the point in terms of qualifying a statement to Timothy. And once stated, Paul moves very quickly straight back into discussing elders, slightly unusual in terms of its setting. And so we don't want to spend too much time on it because Paul doesn't spend a lot of time on it. But what we do want to see here is that Paul has a great relationship with Timothy. It's one of great concern and great care. And that is what it means to be in partnership in ministry, is to care enough that you break off a letter to make sure you get that statement across before you continue, because you're concerned for one another. Verse 24, the sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. 
So if we're seeking elders and pastors who preach and teach the word of God, who serve in a most excellent way, who stand up against accusations and who will be found living pure and holy lives, how on earth do we go about selecting them? Well, Paul helpfully gives us four key things to consider. Firstly, some will have sins that are perpetual and they're evident. No digging is required. It's obvious that they live an unholy and ungodly life. These individuals should be rejected from such a role. Some will have sins, number two, that will become apparent as you do a little bit of digging through the process of election. They will also go unrepentant and they will also be found ungodly in their response. These individuals should be rejected from such a role. Then thirdly, some will have good deeds that are evident. Their sound doctrine will lead to a sound conduct. These individuals should be considered for church leadership. And then fourthly, some don't have much to show. But as you do a little bit of digging, go a little bit deeper, good deeds are found to be a daily practice. Again, their sound doctrine has led to sound conduct. These individuals should also be considered for godly leadership in the church. Now, in no way does this replace the list of chapter 3. Rather, it enhances it. It shows that the character, the conduct and the doctrine of an individual needs to seriously be considered before being elected as a leader or to remain as a leader. Why? Because this is the church of God. This is the one that is headed up by Jesus Christ himself and therefore holiness, purity and godliness must be met as a standard for church leadership. Now we began with a question, didn't we? What does it look like for the church to take care of its leaders? We've seen that we are to care for those who serve excellently. We've seen that we're to correct those who wander away. And we've seen that we should stop before we elect a leader in case they are found to be in sin and we're to take our time to elect them. Now, these are the academic things that we get from this passage. So the question I now have is, how does this apply to the church, the family of God here at Lincoln Baptist Church? And I have three things that I, I think we can pull out from this passage and apply to our church family. Here's the first one. Generous care, not constant griping. Generous care, not constant griping. Uh, clear there, there are leaders who do not serve with excellence. And we'll come on to that in a moment. But we seek both our leaders to serve the Lord and to serve in a most excellent way. And when they do, our response should be one of generous care, not constant griping. Now, clearly, as the pastor of LBC here, I have to be a little bit careful here as we apply this. But what do I mean by generous response to those who serve well? Well, the church should be known for lavish and generous and lovingly honouring the leaders who serve well. There should be no roadblocks to their service. The budget should reflect this attitude. Our ministry teams should reflect this attitude. And our staff should know the care that comes from the church. I remember during our family's time of all having COVID, uh, how the church stepped in for us. Uh, we had meals provided, we had fruit baskets sent, we had financial gifts, we even had offers to walk the dog. I had several men email in to say that they would preach for me for a couple of weeks to give me rest. We had several families send gifts for our girls to do activities because they knew that isolation was tough on them. It really was a strange time because it was wonderful to be blessed by the church, for the church to pick us up to generously and lavishly care for us but it's also odd because we were also totally wiped out by COVID. So we were blessed as we suffered. Now, 
As grateful as I am for that, and I do have to be careful here, I wonder when we look to the statistics and I hear my fellow brothers in other churches as they begin to serve the Lord and as they suffer for the Lord, why something bad has to happen before the church supports in a most generous way. Why are we leaving pastors and leaders to get to the point of breaking before we generously and lavishly honour them as they serve in excellence? More than that, why do we still not honour Philippians 2.14 in our churches? Why do pastors and leaders still get constant emails, texts and phone calls of complaints and gripes? Should the church not respond in prayer for the man of God who serves, rather than gripe against the one who's trying to tell them the truth? It is a command of God that we double honour those who serve well and those who labour in preaching and teaching. Let us not simply obey when the leader feels a bit rough around the edges. Let us daily seek to obey the command to give them double honour. Because maybe, just maybe, if we do this, we will see less pastors leaving the ministry, less pastors feeling stressed and the strain of ministry, and maybe we'll see their spouses enjoying and celebrating the life of service for the kingdom. Those who serve well in a most excellent way should be double honoured, not just in a particular week, a particular month, but on a daily basis by the church. Secondly, serious correction, not fearful apathy. Serious correction, not fearful apathy. And let me talk just for a few moments directly to my fellow leaders here at LBC. We cannot think we can sin and then somehow hide from the consequences. We cannot take our roles flippantly Instead, we must seriously devote ourselves to sound doctrine, sound conduct, and to serve the church in a godly manner. And here is why the church has responsibility, and we, as we lead the church, have responsibility to openly correct perpetual sin. Holiness has to be established and honoured, not just in the church, but in our leadership. We cannot be apathetic as we lead the church, for as we are, so the church will be. So we cannot sin as leaders and think there'll be no consequence at the other side. But then we have the flip side, and so I, I speak directly to the church family. Scripture does not give you the right to attack leaders. It does not give you the right to gripe against them. It does not give you the right to send them angry emails, but it does command you to expect holiness in your leaders. Scripture commands that you do not select those who are known for sin. It commands that you do not let a leader continue if they are known for sin. It commands that you are to be bold enough to come together and honour God over a leader that is found sinning. Yet in all of this, I want to caveat with one point. Be like Jesus. He went to the cross to die for the sake of sinners, to set them free from their sin. And as the Spirit draws people to Jesus, and as they repent and genuinely seek forgiveness, they find wonderful forgiveness and a new life in Christ. So we're not to lord over our leaders with the power to correct. Instead, we're to lovingly seek to correct, lovingly seek for them to repent, lovingly seek to forgive, and then lovingly seek to restore for the sake of service for the kingdom of God. Third and finally, and I'll be quick with this, godly wisdom, not man's credentials. Godly wisdom, not man's credentials. Again, very quickly, who should be a leader of the church? The one who holds godly wisdom, evidence through sound doctrine and sound conduct. 
You can have credentials as long as you're armed. You can be a member for decades. You can be highly skilled, but if you do not have godly wisdom, evidence in your life, you should not be a leader of the church. Far too many select leaders on personal preference or friendships or agendas they seek. Know that if you are found to elect a leader hastily in an incorrect manner and support that perpetual sin, then you are found to partake in their sin and therefore no longer stand in purity. We cannot fall into this trap in the church, for this is how Satan will bring the church down. So let's just get serious. Now we've covered all this ground. Let us say this. Let us expect our leaders to be godly. Let us seek for them to serve in a most excellent way. Let us correct those who openly sin. And importantly, let us give double honour and increase generous and lavish honour to those who labour to the exhaustion for the Lord. As we head into our closing prayer, I commend you to you our leaders, Ola, Richard, Marion, and Colin, pray for your leaders. Pray they would serve in a most excellent manner. Pray that they would be repentant of sin and that they would fear God more than they fear man. Pray that they would be established and affirmed in Christ and pray that God would do mighty things through them. Pray that in all of these things they would be above reproach and that they would be found worthy of double honour as they serve in a most excellent manner. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed pray for your church. We pray that our leaders would stand strong on the word of God, that they would serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that they would serve in a most excellent manner. We pray that we would be known as leaders who serve in holiness and godliness and purity. Father, we pray that the church would expect that of us, that they would commend us to be like that, that they would encourage us to be like that. Because Father, we know as the leaders, so the church will be. And so Father, we pray that we're not scared of correcting sin. We're not scared of rebuking and correction and we're not fearful of the outcome but father instead that we would have a high view of scripture a high view of holiness so that the church of Christ would reflect the gospel message that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and to set them free from the punishment of their sin father we pray that our church here at Lincoln Baptist would reflect this and how it runs and how it's led and how it is and father we pray as we come back to the building next week that this wouldn't be just something we say on online church, but this is something we live out before the church. And so, Father, we pray you would raise up leaders who serve in the most excellent way and that you would encourage the church to serve and honour them as generously and as lavishly as the scripture has told us. We pray this in your name. Amen.